Welcome to Plaything, conversations about games, interactivity, art, and culture. This podcast is recorded live at the USC Game Innovation Lab, which is part of the USC Games program at the University of Southern California. For more information, follow us on Twitter at USC Game Lab or visit our website at gameinnovationlab.com slash playthink. All right, so welcome everyone to Playthink, our second Playthink salon of the year. Uh, our guest tonight is uh, Brian Upton, who is an uh, internationally recognized game designer uh, and game theorist, which we're going to talk about tonight. And with 20 years of, uh, probably over 20 years, we would say, of, of professional experience in the game industry. And for 14 years, he worked as a senior game designer at Sony Santa Monica Studio, where he collaborated with external titles uh, uh, on titles such as Fat Princess, Warhawk, Sorcery, uh, Everybody Has Gone to the Rapture, Bound, and Here They Lie. And prior to joining Sony, he was the creative director at Red Storm Entertainment, where he pioneered the tactical shooter genre as the lead designer on Rainbow Six and Ghost. Uh, he's also the author of two books on game design, The Aesthetic of Play and Situational Game Design, which we will uh, talk about this evening. And I am Tracy Fullerton. I am a professor and game designer at uh, USC Games, and I am the director of the USC Games uh, Innovation Lab. Welcome, Brian. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. This we're, is great. We're so happy to, to have you here. I, I have to tell you that um, one of the reasons that we invited you is, is that I, 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 I read your book. I had it. For, we have the same publisher. And I read your book. <laughs> they sent me copies of books, and, and I was sitting on my table. And uh, for, for some time, uh, and I finally had time to, to read it. I'm a little bit late to the, to the party, I guess. Um, and I was so blown away by this book. I just, I went to Richard, I said, I said, Brian talks about games uh, in, the, in the way that I think about games, and he's the closest to the way that I think about games that I've, I've ever come. So I said, we have to invite him here immediately. Oh, that's <laughs> wonderful. Thank you very much. I mean, because I'm, I'm not a game academic, and so I wrote these books, and I just kind of threw them out into the void. And because I'm not involved in game academic circles, I have no idea if anybody's reading them or not. So getting this sort of feedback from you is really flattering and wonderful because, yeah. Um, well, you should know that I recently gave a keynote at Meaningful Play and I gave a huge shout out to your book and I said, we should all be reading this book. So you may actually be selling more copies. Uh, that, that, <laughs> that, would, that would be very wonderful. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about, specifically I want to talk about situational game design because I think it's a really useful book for game designers. And well, I, yeah. I, I, let me just say, part of the reason I wrote it was because I talked to people who were teaching the first book mm -hmm. and it's not really a good book to teach. And so part of my goal was to create a book that was a more teachable version of the ideas that were in the first book. I could see that immediately. Okay. Uh, I actually happened to read the, f the second book first uh, and then the first book, but I could see immediately that this is an extremely useful book for game designers. So, so just to start off, um, for those who may not uh, have, have read the book yet, uh, which we, we assume you will be soon reading it, um, can you just give us a, a, a top-level introduction to situational play and, and how this, this, this concept differs from the more, uh, as you call it, transactional model uh, of game design that, that we talk about? Well, one thing I notice is that um, a lot of people emphasize how uniquely interactive games are, and then they ground their theory of how games operate in their interactivity. And 
it's true that games are um, a uniquely interactive medium. That's one of the things that makes them interesting and special. But that doesn't mean that all play is interactive. And if you start by thinking of the interaction as being the nucleus of what play is, then you tend to base your design thinking about what the game is asking you to do and what you do in return. It's a transaction. It's like, you know, here's, you need to make a move and then I do something back and it's a continual ping pong back and forth between the game and the player and that's where play lives. What I realized was that in my own design experience, there are a lot of situations where the playful experience happens when the player isn't doing anything. And in my introduction, I talk about the idea of, of both aimlessness and stillness. That there are playful moments when you don't think that you're, whether the game's not asking you to do anything and you don't actually have to do anything to feel like you're playing. And so, um, as a result, thinking about games as ways to structure situations instead of ways to create interactions can be a new methodology for thinking about how to create playful experiences. It's, it's a wonderful methodology. And in fact, one of the, th it's, you know, one of the things that struck me is that um, we practice what we call uh, play-centric design here, um, which is focused on the player. But uh, what I love about your framework for situational play is that it's, it's unflinchingly focused on the player. And it fa in fact, when you describe a game, you, you blur the lines between the, the, um, the player and the game. You really actually talk about the game um, as being inclusive of the player and the player's experience. Yeah, I mean, partially it became because it, as I started working on these ideas originally, I started thinking about, like, what is a way to generalize the idea of what is forming the, 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 the play space? And I hit upon the idea of referring to them as constraints. And as I started to think about constraints, I realized that a lot of the things that constrain a play space are things that the players themselves bring to the game. They're not things that the, they're not rules the game is imposing on you, but there are things like strategies or attitudes or knowledge of the real world we all know how things are supposed to go, and games tap into that. And so if, once you start thinking about the fact that many of the rules that are governing the play space live inside the player's head, then it kind of resituates the play into the player's head and not out in this interactive, you know, um, dialogue with the game itself. Which is really a wonderful paradigm shift, I think, mm -hmm. you know, to think of the the game itself as being, as I, you know, I just keep thinking about inclusive of the player's state of mind, the player's, you know, prior knowledge, the player's, the changes, as you talk about, that the player goes through as they interact with, with these constraints, with these with these rules. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, to me, it's just, a, it's, it's really wonderful. And you have this, um, you, you have a very specific uh, vocabulary. You talk about the game as designed, which would be the, the actual, you know, kind of quote-unquote object or, or, you know, thing that is designed. The game is experienced uh, and the game is understood, uh, which I think is a sort of beautiful arc. Uh, yeah, I mean, and it's, uh, I mean, should, should I explain a little sure. more what those are? Yes, yeah. yes, so, so yes. The game is designed is what as game designers we do. It's, it's, it's the pixels on the screen. It's the, the rules that are embodied in, in the that are in the rule book or the, that are in the code. It's the thing that we make. And the game is experienced is the player's interaction with it. And, the, and depending on how they play, they may or may not encounter all of the game as designed. There may be hidden levels they miss. There may be, you know, if you, it's quite often to play mini, it's, it's easy to play mini games of chess without ever castling or doing impassant pawn capture. So there's certain rules that never, that never come into play. So the game is experienced, um, depends upon the game's design, but it doesn't necessarily, it's not congruent with it, it's not, it's not the same thing. But more important than that is that 
what the player is actually playing is not the game that's been designed, or even the game that they experienced. It's the game they think that they have in their head. And um, I can give some, spe some specific examples. Like when I was designing the original Rainbow Six Shooters, um, we originally had a very complicated um, set of morale rules that were uh, like really bogging down processor time. And so eventually we just ditched them. And um, we had very, very stupid AI. But when we talked to players, we discovered that players were ascribing all sorts of motivations to the AI that wasn't there. They had this sort of theory of what the enemies were doing that wasn't, in fact, what the enemies were doing in the code. And I realized that that extends to almost every aspect of every game. You, you experience the game that you think you're playing, and sometimes it lines up with what was designed, and sometimes it's entirely different. And the ways in which your understanding shifts and changes uh, according to how you play, it may never converge upon what the, the designer originally intended. Um, there's actually a fourth thing that that goes along with all these, and that's the conceptual background, and that is what what exists in the player's mind before they start to play. So that even before the game is understood, exists in a context of this conceptual background that exists long before the game even starts. And so when you start to play, the your first experiences are conditioned by your expectations based on previous games and based on the real world. Sure, mm -hmm. it's the beginning state, really, yeah. so, yeah. And, and so. And so when you're designing a game, a lot of times I think of it as like building a ship inside a bottle, that what you're trying to do is create some things over here um, in the game is designed that will actually spawn particular game as understood experiences over here, but you can't assume that the thing you're making as the game is designed is in fact the game that's going to be understood. And sometimes you you use that as a as a tool, right? I am famously I'm thinking about uh, the Sims, right? Which uh, I don't think that they want you to understand how the AI of those characters no. work, right? <laughs> if they did, it would kill the magic right. of the fact that it looks like they're hungry when really they're just responding to a, a number, right? Exactly. And and you as a player are you know mapping it onto your own personal experience of what it means to be hungry. Go to the fridge and look at it, right? Exactly. Uh, and then it has meaning for you. Right? Yeah, and. And we do this in games all the time. We, we there's all sorts of things we assume about how the real world works. Yes. It's like when you play a driving game. We all, most of us who are playing driving games, have driven, and we kind of and, and so there might be interesting ways to have a vehicle move in a game, but we tend to converge upon designing games that move in, where, the, where the vehicles move in ways that we can map onto our knowledge that already exists of how things move in the real world, and so um, it's. There's a, there, I mean, I, I could go on for a long time. There's this there's there's, there's huge, interesting relationship between what is a simulation and what are we actually simulating? Are we, in fact, really simulating what the real world is doing or are we merely gesturing towards what the real world um, seems to be doing so that people uh, um, like snap their own understanding onto the, the, the vague cues that we're giving them? Exactly. I mean, you know, generally in games, we are only using simulations as a, a method to get to a playful situation, right? Yeah. We're not. Try, you know, we're not trying to fully simulate the world, fully simulate driving or, or you know, a person yeah. being hungry, right? Uh, but uh, but can we talk a little bit about playfulness for just a second? Because uh, <laughs> you talk quite a bit about it in in the book. Yeah. So I mean, one of the things that because when I started doing this, I was I was actually trying to make a set of tools that I could use to help me design better games, and also to avoid 
quite so much trial and error. Yeah. Because a lot of game design is like, hey, we're going to build something. Oh, that's not fun. Okay, tweak it. Oh, that's not fun. Tweak it. That's not fun. And if you can at least cut out some of those loops, at least get something that's a little closer on the first iteration. So I started trying to develop heuristics that could allow you to characterize the playfulness of a situation. And the playfulness is not something that lives in the, the game's rules. It's kind of something that exists in the, in the, the game's experience. What is it about the moment-to-moment -moment experience that the game is providing for you when it's combined with your understanding that produces the feeling of it being playful? Um, and I, I think you, you'd asked me um, previously when we were talking about this talk about you know like how did this all um, how did this all originate? Yeah, these, you have six uh, heuristics that you that you you first introduced it in the first book and then you you recontextualize them as tools in in situational game design, right? And I was just wondering how you arrived at these these six uh, heuristics. You know? um, it was all um, thought experiments. I would start off, so I start off with the, with the premise that, that games are about making interesting choices. Um, and I don't remember who I'm quoting there. Sid Meier. It's Sid Meier, thank you. Um, and I'm like, okay, well, what, what makes interesting choice? Okay, well, what makes a choice interesting? So the first heuristic is choice, and, um, and, and so that I started with that. But then I started thinking, well, what are uninteresting choices? What are situations that I can imagine where, if, if, that's the, if the only rule is you have to have choices, what are situations where you have choices where that's not fun? And and I started gradually building out like er, like what rule do I need to, what rule do I need to add to constrain this situation so that it is um, that it to, to cut away the unfun parts. So the, the the second one was variety. If you do the same like a situation can be fun, but if you do the same thing over and over again, it gets boring. And this crops up all over the place in games and it's a real problem because it's like hey this is really fun and then you realize that like after playing it for half an hour it's not choice a hundred times so then it's like okay you have choice but th that those choices have to change over time and then um, the the next one was consequence that the choice has to has to has to change the game in some way and the example I used there was like uh, if you remember the old coin-op arcades, they'd often have attract modes um, where you would go play. And you, and if you like, um, if you're a kid like me and you didn't have enough quarters, you could sort of stand there and hold the steering <laughs> wheel. It was kind of pathetic. You could pretend that you're driving, mm -hmm. and it's like I'm making choices. I'm turning the wheel, yes. and the choices are. It's always a different scene in front of me, and you know there's variety, but there's no consequence because I haven't put the coin in, so there's it has no effect over where the car is going, and so. The idea that, that it's, it's not just that you're making choices, and it's not just that you're making different choices over time, but that the choices are somehow changing the constraints for making future choices. The idea that you have this little, this little um, situation that you're in, and because of the choices you made, you're now in a different situation. So that was, that, that was the, the first three. But then I started coming up, then I realized, well, but it's not enough to actually go to a different situation you need to be able to predict the situation you're going to. Because again, if, if something happens completely unexpectedly in a game, if you're like, you turn the steering wheel and instead of the car going to the left, the car explodes, that's no fun, that's frustrating, that's awful. So predictability obviously has to be one, so that you have to be able to anticipate what's gonna happen next. But then, if you have too much predictability, um, that's not fun either. So there, there's this sweet spot of where you think you know how it's going to go, but you don't know for sure. And um, and the the, the counterexample I, I used there when I was thinking about it was that like um, chess games are over when someone says mate in three and everybody agrees. You d even though there are moves left to be made, you don't make those moves because there's no point, there's no fun if you know that there's a foregone conclusion. And any time you're in a game 
and it feels like you know exactly how it's going to play out, you know exactly what it is, that's when it's over. You're done. You don't need to keep playing when, when you know There's what no it is. There's no more playfulness. There's no more playfulness. And then the final one um, was the satisfaction emerged last. Uh, I was actually um, I'm talking to a friend of mine who's also a designer, a guy named Andy Ashcraft, and he's like, you, don't, you never talk about winning your goals or anything. And I started thinking about like, you know, what, what does it mean to win? And not just to win, but what, what does it mean to, for it to have the game go the way you want? And what are the different ways the game can go? Because you can have a game that satisfies all these other criteria. You can have a game that you know, gives you lots of choices and it's, you know, it, it has lots of variety and, and everything else. But if it's just too hard, then the play evaporates as well. And it also evaporates if it's too easy. If it feels inconsequential right. and nothing ever happens. And so the notion of satisfaction and having that it's not just that you're making these moves and you're moving through this play space, but there's a way to say some moves are good and some moves are bad. It's that differentiation between good or bad that lies at the heart of satisfaction. And that um, there has to be some criteria that you apply for making a move good or bad. Um, in many games, the criteria is winning. Good moves move you towards winning. But there, are, it turns out there, are, and I talked about this in the book, there are other criteria you can use for judging whether moves in a play space are good and bad. And in many cases, those are the criteria we use when we're um, experiencing narrative or we're right. playing make-believe. There's There are a variety of ways to play that don't involve winning, and those use these other criteria for, for determining whether moves are good and bad or whether they satisfy us. Well, that's particularly interesting to us, obviously. We, we are very interested in innovative play and you know games that break some of the rules of, of more typical genres. So uh, the notion of satisfaction I, I, I found very satisfying because <laughs> it didn't imply that uh, a, you know, a zero sum or a, a win loss was uh, ultimately the only way to, to find a satisfying end to a game. Well, and one of the ways you found it satisfying is because it was it cohered with what your, your previous understanding of play spaces. It, it did. And, it so, <laughs> and, so, and so the coherence um, 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 victory condition came into play even though you didn't have a win state. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, um, uh, so there's a couple of, of other ideas I want to sort of uh, touch on because I, I, I find them really interesting. Um, one of them is anticipatory play, right? So there's this idea that there are moments when the game could slow down or even hold still and you could give the player the opportunity to think about what is coming next, right? Yep. And we often, often we just were just racing towards things with games, right? But I just love this notion of anticipatory play as being something, a tool that we can use, a, a, a kind of, uh, uh, you know, possibility space that we really haven't played much in, with in games. Yeah, um, I, I stumbled on this by accident in, in Rainbow Six, the first big game I did. And a lot of Rainbow Six is creeping around. And strangely enough, even though it's a shooter, the shooting is over really, really fast. The, the combats tend to be really sort of quick and bloody and, and really lethal. And most of the gameplay exists in trying to get the drop on people and or avoid being seen. And so when I started to, to when I started was developing these heuristics and I was thinking, well, like, how do my own games fit into this? This doesn't <laughs> you know, it, it's like, what are people doing when they're hiding in a corner watching a guard? They're not interacting, but that's really fun. And it, you know, Metal Gear Solid does this really well. Um, every horror game ever made does this really well. Um, I think uh, horror games, by the way, are fantastic model for um, unusual play mechanics because they tend to be, they, they have limited interaction, their interactions are often awkward and difficult, 
but they still, they're still very, very fun. And so anticipatory play emerged out of the idea of thinking, well, how do I take these heuristics and how, how in this framework of these heuristics do I think about these sorts of situations where you're not doing anything, but you're thinking about what you're going to do? And once I, once I sort of made that leap, I thought, well, I mean, it, it exists all over the place that even in very fast-paced action games, there's often these brief little lulls where you're um, you're thinking about what's going to happen next. So, like I play a lot of Overwatch. I'm really really addicted <laughs> to Overwatch. And nobody here. Is. <laughs> I'm just and um, um, I'm uh, um, I'm not the best at targeting, but I have a lot of tactical intelligence. And so, and it's really satisfying in Overwatch to um, know where somebody is going to be, and to um, to kill them because you knew where they were going to be. It's like, oh, I know what he's doing. You know, he's coming around the other side because I saw him go around there, and and that that sense of of, of getting inside the other player's head, and that that, that 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 sort of rush that you get when you're able to do that. That's all anticipation. And but it turns out that the, the, this sort of play obeys the same heuristics. And so when you're designing anticipatory space, the play space you can imagine is that in the player's head they're they're shifting through all these competitions they're making all these moves they're they're exploring this decision tree and branching out among all the little ramifications and interesting decision trees to explore in your head obey these same heuristics you need to have um, you know a limit a, a, a fair number of choices it's not a, a simple linear decision of what's going to happen but you need to be able to, to branch out in a variety of ways. There are clear consequences, and it's predictable because otherwise you couldn't be doing the anticipatory play at all. But you're never quite sure. You're always having to revise your internal model of what's happening. Like, I thought I knew it was happening, but he never appeared. Is he, is he you know, ducking around behind? What, you know, this sort of sense that you're continually revising and, uh, and, 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 and um, revisiting your theory of what's happening yes. is a big part of what makes anticipatory play um, interesting. And then, of course, I mean, it, it, it all has to ground out in some sort of, you, you have to converge upon some sort of understanding of, oh, that's what's going on. Because if you never reach that, if you're just baffled, then it's, it doesn't feel playful. Well, and one of the interesting things about it is its relation, I mean, I'm skipping outside of our, the, our discussion here, but its relationship to other media. I mean, you know, so storytelling is all about the, the audience's anticipation, right? I mean, we are, we're just wired to be anticipating what is going to happen next in the story. And so here you are, you're basically saying, well, we're doing the same thing in these moments of play, right? Yeah. It may be different types of anticipation, and there, we may be looking for different clues about what might happen next. Right, but it's it's basically the same tool set, yeah. right? That we use as humans to understand our world, to understand stories. Yeah, no, I mean, it, and it's um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna utter some dirty words here, and that is the narratology ludology debate. <laughs> and um, <laughs> but no, no, no. So, but uh, I think part of what's going on with the narratology ludology debate is that narratology has two thousand years of tools, and they're like, hey, we can explain everything, and ludology is like, no, there's a bunch of stuff you can't explain. Don't colonize us. And I think what we should really be thinking about is that um, I think that narratology should be subsumed under game studies, that we should be colonizing them <laughs> instead of the other way around. Because I think that, I th I think that, that literary studies is a very narrow, special case of play experiences. Mm. And they've spent a lot of time really boring down on a particular type of play experience and I think they're, th that's grounded in you know, childhood make-believe, mm -hmm. um, which is, I, and, and when I say childhood, I love childhood make-believe. I love all sorts of make-believe. That's, that's not intended to be derogatory. But I think that they've, 
um, they've, they, they've explored a whole bunch in one direction and there's a much wider field and you actually need to sort of take a step back and say, no, we need to recontextualize literary studies within game studies. Um, <laughs> so you want a manifesto there. I know, I, I, think, I, I, know. I think we should be colonizing them. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and, and, so I, and, and so I think that, that it's the, and, and it's not that like there's not stuff that, a lot of the stuff that I, I picked up from, I drew from um, existing literary studies, particularly reader response theory, because there are theorists who from the, the literary side um, saw all this. They saw that a lot of what's, what's happening that is, as we're reading or listening to a story, we're always living in anticipation. Yeah. We always have an idea of where things are headed and really good stories are ones where that mostly works out but then oh my god I can't believe that happened that but, twist. oh I knew that was gonna <laughs> I, I should have known that was gonna happen that sort of sense of like you're always teetering on mm -hmm. knowing and unknowing in a really good story and that's yes. what keeps you on your seat um, and you're always revising your sense of like you know who, who is this character what, you, what is she doing why is she doing what are her motivations that this continual cycling on an on a, an evolving internal model of the of the story space that you're you're within is exactly the same thing that's going on in anticipatory play. It's just using a different constraint set as its input. I I mean I completely agree, and it was one of the r moments where I've just like leaped out of my chair, and I'm like, this is this is what we need to be yeah. talking about, right? Yeah. This relationship, you know, and then you can start talking about the beats of play, right? And it it bears a really strong relationship to theater and 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 other forms of of narrative that. Um, we understand as playfulness, right? right? But we we have divorced it from uh, actual players in yeah. games. We, we call them plays. Yes, we, we call, call them we plays. <laughs> exactly. Enough said. We call them plays, and then and then we're done. And it's related to this this other. You you also um, define what you call um, interpretive play, right? So so um, this this sort of acknowledging that the player is engaged, even if it's not necessarily what you'd call interactive, what we would typically call interactive, but we are engaged in an active process of interpretation of the play space and of the narrative space and, and uh, just of the experience as a whole. Yeah, I mean, the, the interpretive play is, is the literary stuff coming back in, but then it, it, it actively really supports the game design part. And the way to think about it is that if, we're, if, we're, if the game is understood, is existing exists in the sort of continual anticipatory play space where you're always sort of like like working out the possibilities and where things could possibly be going and what you could be doing next and what uh, what the other actors in the world might be doing then that anticipatory play space is structured by a set of constraints and some of those constraints are the actual rules of the game that we've internalized like we know how things behave but some of them what I call strategic constraints and those are strategies of play like I know that I shouldn't, um, an example I use is with Go. There are a huge number of, of starting positions in, in a Go board, but if you're a good Go player, you know that there are really only three of them matter. And so there is a strategic constraint that you have you learned very early on in playing Go that like really you're going to start off playing in one of these three places right. unless you have a really good reason not to. And so that constrains the, the, the anticipatory space of Go. And in any game we play, there are these large, complicated anticipatory strategic constraints that we construct in our heads to help us play and that's why we get better at games we have, we have better strategic constraints aside from our, twi our twitch reflexes we, we know how the game is going to go and we adjust how we play um, um, accordingly and interpretive play is a similar sort of thing we, we as we um, 
read a story or watch a movie or, um, or look at a painting, we begin creating um, internal constraints that explain the experience we're having. Um, and that might be what are, the internal, what are the motivations of the characters, what is likely to happen next, um, how does this fit into the existing um, um, cubist movement. There are a whole wide <laughs> variety of different strategic constraints we can use to make to take what the raw experience that we're that, that we're encountering and chunk it into a predictive framework so that this thing that we've experienced now becomes evidence for understanding the unfolding world around us and so you know if if a if a if a book is satisfying then it goes the way that we expect it to go because it is we've built up our strategic constraints and we get to the end we're like oh yeah Yes, that's right. That's how it should have been. Even if it it's not the way we want it yes. to, right? See, that's this the is, key, right? It's, it's, it's not necessarily how we want, but, but but it all feels like it hangs together in, in that, and it may hang together in terms of like having you know, a plot that's knit up tidily, or it might hang together in that it satisfies our own political um, um, motivations, or it might hang together because um, we're trying to fit it into our understanding of someone's lifetime oeuvre. So there might be all these different ways that something could hang together but that sense that we're working towards cre creating the, the, this interpretive, internal interpretive model that makes sense of what we're having. And by making sense of something, it means we can predict it. We can know, it tells us its place in the world and the way in which its place in the world leads us to understand how everything around us is necessarily unfolding. It, 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 to me, it's such a wonderful acknowledgement of the, um, it, it's it's a respect really for the player's internal experience, right? That we should acknowledge that their interpretive contribution to the the play of the game is a is as important as all of these other aspects that we've designed into it. Yeah, I mean, one of the things is, is that there's no wrong way to play. If you're getting right. something satisfying out of a game, yeah. even for playing it in a completely bizarre way that the designer never intended, good for you. Wonderful. Um, I'm a big fan of camp, and camp is um, um, playing with literature, or um, camp is playing with texts in ways that were not intended. Right. And so you can take something like Plan 9 from Outer Space, for example, and by recontextualizing the conceptual background you used to improve to, to, um, to watch Plan 9 from Outer Space, instead of it being a really bad movie, it's a really good movie. And it's a really good movie because it satisfies you in a way that you want to be satisfied by shifting the the framework of, of, of your critical interpretation. And what this means is that it's... I like to say that, that um, I'm, I'm interested in aesthetics, but not prescriptive aesthetics, yes. but descriptive aesthetics. And a prescriptive aesthetic tells you why something is good or bad. And I think that's a really boring question. What I'm more interested in is how something is good or bad. Um, we all know in, when we experience things, we're like, I like that, or I didn't like that. And then the aesthetic analysis comes afterwards where we justify why we liked right. or didn't like something. And instead of trying to sort of prove like, oh, this is the, you know, the, you know, this is the good thing. You should, you, you should like um, the solo movie because of all, <laughs> here's all the reasons you should like it while it's all Wow, you're going to explain that to me? I don't know. <laughs> actually, I haven't, actually I, haven't, I haven't seen it. I, I, I have very strong opinions about Star Wars, which we shouldn't get into. But, but, but instead of, but, but it's kind of like, if you, it's interesting to have, to, for somebody who likes it, 
to describe how they like it. Understanding the how of someone liking something is, I think, is really, really fascinating. Um, what I think is really boring is someone saying, "Oh, um, um, you didn't like that, and I did." Well, you're wrong, because it's all grounded in our sub subjective experience, and it's all grounded in what we what we bring to the. Um, um, to the thing that we're interacting with. It is, and, and, and what that sort of brings me to, to is actually, um, as a designer, you are, you know, the, these kinds of discussions about whether something's good or bad, it, it's important to get to the how, right? And the right. reason it's important to get to the how for a designer is because we are designing to a goal, yes. an experience goal. And just by the way, this is something that, that our students uh, learn and, and um, that some of them find particularly difficult. So uh, you have a, a methodology that you talk about of how we set an experience goal and, and we get into designing uh, situations that, that meet this, these, these goals. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I mean, a, a lot of things start off with a, a mechanic who, that appeals to a designer. It's like, hey, I, do this I, I coded this up and I do this thing and oh, that's fun and let's do more of that. And you're designing for yourself and that isn't necessarily the person who's going to be playing your game. <laughs> right. Um, and so um, my methodology tends to... And you're designing, to just if you don't mind, you're designing not only for yourself, but for yourself who already understands yes. that design. Yes. So you're designing you for a state that, that is going to rarely exist. Yes. You know? So <laughs> yeah, so, so the, the approach I, I take is, is, is start off thinking what experience do you want the player to have? And by experience, I, I almost mean like, who do you want the player to be while they're playing the game? Um, you, know, um, you know, do you want them to imagine that they're a ruthless killer? Do you want them to imagine that they're a scared little bunny rabbit? Do you want them to imagine that they're um, you know, loving and caring and decent and taking care of everybody? There, there's, there are roles that we slipped into. Another thing I say is like every game is a role-playing game. Um, yeah. That, um, and that even game. if you're playing a square yes. on the screen. Yeah. That we, we, we always slip in and, and so every game is, is encouraging you to be somebody while you're playing it. That you, that the action of playing it embodies you within a particular character who you who are creating. And so start thinking about who is the person that you want the player to be. Not necessarily who do you want to play it, but who do who do I want them to be while they're playing it? And then from there, um, go to um, um, to what actions um, that p a person like that would be performing. So, um, um, oh God, I'm, I'm forgetting his name. Um, the, the idea of, of ludonarrative dissonance. The idea that we have things where, that, that, that you do things in games that, that don't agree with um, who the character is. is so why does... Clint Hawking? Uh, I think it's Clint Hawking. I think yeah. you're right. Um, and it's the... the um, it's like you're, you're playing Link in, in a Zelda game and you're, you're smashing everybody's pots. <laughs> and it's like it's some you know yes it's fun to smash pots but it's also a little bit odds with who you're supposed to be that that ah, you're, you're not true. You're, you're not you know are you really this hero who goes into people's houses and smashes pots <laughs> you know it's and, and so um, and so you once you have a sense of who you want the player to be then think about okay so what sort of actions define the character that I'm creating so instead of starting from mechanics and going and just seeing what emerges saying you know well yeah I want I want you know I want, I want, I want you know, I want you to be your scared little bunny rabbit, so that you're 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 always hiding. You're in bushes. You know, you're nervous about things. You're looking around a lot. You're you're listening for things. 
you know, that the 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 mechanics emerge from the performance that you're asking the player to perform. And then once you say, okay, these are these are the kind of actions that will define this performance that creates a, a particular um, uh, mindset in, in, in the player's mind, what constraints, what rules do I impose upon a player so that performing these actions seems natural? So that you're not thinking, um, oh, I'm forcing you to perform these actions, but th that you go, but by going with the grain of the game, you naturally fall into performing these actions. And, and this is where the, the, the heuristics come into play because these actions need to feel playful. Um, but it's, it's also where the idea of a conceptual background comes into play. You're like, okay, who is likely to be playing their ga my game? And what knowledge, what cons internal constraints will they bring to the table that is combined with this game to create this, these, these situations where I want them to be, to, to be enacting a particular sort of performance. And, and, I mean, in some cases, I mean, you can't please everybody. There, is, there are some players who can never get into the space you want them to get into because they have this set of constraints and you need, need a different set of constraints and you can never work them into having the experience you want. But you, can, you think like, okay, if, if a player approaches this game with this attitude, then what can I add to that attitude or sensibility that then moves them into the performance that I want them to mm. perform? Mm -hmm. And that's the, the, the sense of that, that that's the point where, you, where you're, you're actually designing the rules of the game. And, and, and that's when the game itself actually begins to emerge, but you're emerging by thinking about in terms of, of you know, how, how am I taking a player's existing understanding or sensibility and providing um, a smooth flow, not in the flow, not in the immediately sense, but just a, a general flow into the sorts of performances that I think will be a rewarding set of situations. I'm immediately thinking of uh, what remains of Edith Finch when you're when you're speaking about this performative, these performative mechanics, because I think they did that so beautifully, mm -hmm. um, and and they you know they get to the point in each of these little vignettes where you are performing as the uh, as each of those people, and specifically when you get to the end, you know, and uh, the the this, the worlds begin to collide, right? But you are still that performing a particular action. They're just they're, they're they're asking you to do things that allow you to embody these particular characters. Yes. Yeah. Um, the the example I always like to use is is Journey. Um, yes. And and Journey is interesting because the the gameplay. Um, the win state and the gameplay mechanics leads you into a particular sort of um, um, performance. And that is you learn fairly early on, you randomly, if you haven't played Journey, you're randomly paired with other players. And the players, if, if you're near one of the other players, um, your, your um, jump recharges faster. It's a very simple mechanic. You, 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 um, you, you, you can, so you can jump farther and get to all sorts of places you couldn't get if you were, if you were separate. And so very early on, you develop this sort of strategic constraint of, oh, I should stay with this person. Staying with it, staying with people is good. Working together is good, and it just emerges organically from the way that you're playing. It's it, you win by, or you get to explore more more stuff by 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 following these constraints. But it ingrains in you this sort of sense of of um, of staying with people. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Excuse me, and working together. And there's this beautiful sequence near the end of Journey, which I'm going to spoil for you now. I'm sorry, you should have played it by now. Where um, <laughs> we mostly have here, <laughs> where, where um, you're you're, um, you're near the end of the journey, and there's this huge snowfield ahead of you, and you're hiking up into it, 
and you can't jump. There's no reason to stay next to the other person. And every time I've played it, every person I've played with, we've always stayed side by side as we walk off into oblivion. And eventually, the two of you seemingly die in the snowfield. And the moment when you and your friend, who you've become invested in, um, you know, collapse together into, into the snow is really, really emotionally powerful. And it's emotionally powerful because <coughs> um, the game, through its mechanics, has led you into being the sort of person who wants to stay with the other person. And it's that, that that's progression from the mechanics um, into a way of being in the world that then becomes a meaning yes. that exists within the world um, after the, the game is Absolutely. over. That's very beautiful. One of my, actually, one of my most meaningful moments <coughs> personally uh, of playing games actually is from Journey, and that is um, I was paired with a person, you don't know who they are, right? And it was, we were crossing these bridges with wind, and my, com my companion blew off the bridge. <laughs> and I was so distraught, and I was running back and forth and singing out my note, you know, and, and, and trying to see where my person was. And they never, obviously, that's it, they're gone. And, and, and you can never rejoin with them. And I was so bereft, and I had to continue on my own until I got rematched with someone. But that moment of loss has stayed with me for so long, yeah. you know, and it wasn't, I didn't even know who they were, Yeah. but I was so attached to them. Uh, I, you've if you've played Portal, there's a similar experience with the Weighted Companion Cube. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You, yeah. You, you're with the Weighted Companion Cube for about 10 minutes of gameplay, but you come to, to depend upon it. It's, it's a, this valuable ally, and then you have to perform destroying it. It's not that it's taken away from you or you lose it. You're told in order to progress, you can't get through this locked door until you take this thing that helped you and burn it. It's and, terrible. And it's terrible. I mean, it, and it's a box. It's, it's a box. <laughs> it has no personality. It's so yeah, I know. But 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 and, and but because you've been through, you know, it helped you, and you've been through so much, and it saved you and solved the puzzle. It's yeah, the weighted companion cube it's, is. A, it's and this is it goes back to this idea of interpretive play. You know, this yeah. this we are making this this understanding, and if that understanding create you know. Uh, creates an emotional connection, then you know the the play itself. All of the choices we make are going to be bounded into that interpretation. Yeah. You know, um, so you it, you you actually mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I want to I want to kind of uh, come back to it a little bit. Um, uh, you mentioned this this these people who maybe will never be able to. Uh, uh, understand a particular game, like you, you know, you're designing for some folks, but there's there's people who may never mm. understand. And you you make an almost sort of um, offhand comment um, when you're discussing performative play, in which you you talk about the the, the sort of much maligned genre of the walking simulator, and um, you you say they can be powerful and moving experiences for for players who approach them as performances or narratives, but they can seem empty or pointless to players who are unwilling to engage in this kind of play. Um, so you know, I'm personally extremely interested in the the genre of the walking simulator and its potential for um, creating these different types of moments of play. Do you do you think that we will ever see a kind of larger base of players who are willing to accept these more still moments of play, these 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 less structured moments of play. How large is a is a larger space? Yeah, <laughs> larger <laughs> I mean, than it is now. I, 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 I mean, um, for a while, I would argue with people on the internet about art, and um, and there are people who who will 
yeah, that was pointless. But there are <laughs> there are people who still have a problem with abstract art. Right. And um, I I like abstract art, and but I don't expect everybody to like abstract art. But the number of people who are convinced that abstract art is a scam is really large. Right. So that it's it's not just that like oh you know you um you you like you like snails and I like mussels. It's, you know, it's, it's not just like a matter of taste. It's like, no, you can't possibly like that. There is nothing to like there. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, it, if, we, if we haven't resolved the question of you, should you like abstract art or can you like, not even should, can you like abstract art after, you know, almost a hundred years? Um, you know, I don't think we can ever say whether walking simulators will be, will be acceptable by the mainstream, but it doesn't mean you, you shouldn't be making them. I think that you know, there are some games that are really hard to get into unless you try to work to get yourself in the right mind space for them. Just like there's some, there's some art that's really hard say, to get into. I was going to say, there's literature, there's films, I mean, yeah. that, that they are difficult, purposefully, yeah. uh, because they, like, it's like Go. I mean, some people don't like Go, right? Yeah. It's too challenging for them, right? They should like Go. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> but I'm just saying, some people don't yeah, like no. strategy games yeah. or games with that level of sort of intellectual effort, right? Yeah. It's a, a more visceral that they, uh, appeal that they, that they enjoy, right? And, and same with films or literature. There are, there are pieces that require a commitment to interpretation and to, you know, really digging into it. That that's enjoyable yeah. for some folks. Yeah, and, and sometimes it's pr presented almost like it's like a moral imperative, like you should try to like hard art. And I don't, I don't think that that's really true. I mean, I think that that I think there are ways to like things that are unexplored, and that it's a shame if you limit yourself by only um, consuming comfortable culture. But yeah, I think it's th that's a good term, by the way. <laughs> I like that comfortable culture. Yeah, and, and, yeah. and I like comfortable culture. I mean, there's there's a lot of like crap that I love, and I and. Um, and I, I I love it because it's it's comforting and reassuring and unchallenging and that's that's fine. I also like playing Cookie Clicker, so <laughs> you know. I'm not but it's not the only game that it's you not play. The, it's, it's not the yeah. It, yeah it's, it's not the only. It's, and it's not the only game in town. And but you know, re working to understand how to like a difficult thing can itself be really interesting and entertaining. Um, I first experienced this personally with, with the game Shinmu um, back on the Dreamcast. Oh yeah, mm. sure. And mm. at first, um, I really hated Shinmu. Because <laughs> it, 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 there's a whole lot of pointless stuff to do, and it seems kind of aimless, and there's fighting, but it seems real disconnected from what you're doing. And then at some point, I just said, you know, I'm just going to pretend I am this guy. I, I'm going to stop trying to win this game and I'm just going to say, like, what if I'm just this kind of, like, 20-something guy who has got kind of like a dead-end job and he likes get collecting capsules? And what if, I'm just, what if I just pretend to be this person and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, this game's really good. Right. <laughs> you know, being, I, I'm forgetting the protagonist's name, um, but, but being him, inhabiting him, was a really satisfying experience. Trying to win Shinmu was not. Right. And, but it, but having that conceptual shift, like turning everything like three degrees, you're like, oh, this is how I should play this game, was interesting. And I think, you know, what we have to do is build up a um, set of a, a critical audience who are willing to try to look at things at thirty degrees off axis. Yes. You know, to to say, hey, this is kind of a hard game to get into. Not, well, this is some weird, you know, crap. I'm not interested in this. But to say. Someone made this. Um, I wonder why they made this. How can I how can I recontextualize my approach to get into it? Um, 
there's a, a woman named Natalie Lawhead who's doing some really interesting work, and if you haven't played her games, um, and she's she's really she's frustrated because people keep saying, "Well, this is weird. Were you on drugs when you made this?" And she's like, "No, just try to try to understand what I'm doing." <laughs> you know, yeah. So um, yeah, go play Natalie Lawhead's games. Just okay, all work. right. Uh, that's a, that's an assignment for so. us all. Um, you know, so just I want to finish up with this one last maybe provocative provocation, not necessarily a question, but, uh, and then I want to give folks a chance to ask some questions here. Um, but, you know, towards the end of, of uh, situational game design, uh, you you kind of break out of the theory and the, and the practical, um, uh, uh, you know, tools, and you, and you make a sort of almost, I want to call it a throwaway, almost a parenthetical comment, um, that situational game is not only a method methodology for designing games, but also a manifesto for playing them. Um, and, you, and, you, and you say, you really, you explain, you say the acknowledgement of the existence of implicit goals gives us a way to reconceptualize what we're doing when we play a game. Um, and I, I just think this is really provocative um, when put in today's context of players who want to force designers to design in particular mm -hmm. patterns and they're often very resistant to um, changing design goals or, or strategies. So, you know, I just wanted to, wondering if you want to expand or, or, or um, uh, sort of dive into that for a moment in this this particular time that we <laughs> sit when players are, you know, so demanding of us doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah, I mean, um, oh, where to start? There's so many different things to say. Uh, uh, part of it's that um, there's so much more to play than games. I mean, and we've all. Uh, I, I, th and, um, I had a very, I had a very happy childhood, and I played a lot. I was alone a lot, and I played a lot of stuff by myself. And, but I also had a family that was willing to play with me a lot when they, when they, when they were around. And so, you know, um, there's all sorts of games of make-believe and pretend and exploration. And none of these are geared towards winning. Mm -hmm. And often the purest play experiences are ones where there is no... I mean, when you win a game, yes, it feels good. There's the Fiero. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we don't... We, you don't play a, like a four-hour-long board game to have that little moment at the end where you're like, "Yeah, won." <laughs> it's it's fun the whole way through, whether 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 you win or not. And so, understanding that we don't you don't have to win that win that trying to win is useful only in the sense that it biases good and bad moves in the play space. But there are other ways we could be talking about good or bad moves. Um, and the 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 main ones I identify are um, um, coherence, expansion, and closure. Right and um, coherence is um, the joy of doing something the way it's meant to be done. And um, an example I use is like the really hardcore um, um, grognards, the really serious like war gamers who want it, who are more interested in recreating a battle than whether they win or lose it. And th 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 this you know this goes in also with um, um, with, with historical reenactors. Mm, right. Um, or um, um, people who are uh, doing theatrical performance offices, like nailing it, getting it right. Um, there's this, this real value of, of, of having a sense of how something should go, and there's constraints that make it hard to get there, but it goes that way anyway. And it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't have to be winning, it just, it just feels like everything is in alignment and everything's come together. And that feeling of rightness is one goal that we can be playing towards. Um, you know, and, and, and wrong moves, uh, this also goes back to make-believe, you know, like, if you're playing 
Um, if you're pretending to be uh, a firefighter, then a good move is like um, aiming a pretend hose at a burning building, and a bad move is rolling around on the floor because firefighters don't do that. <laughs> and so that, that's and, and we move away from this as adults because for a child, you know, um, negotiating the 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 constraints of you know, your limited dexterity and your limited understanding of the world and getting it right in make believe is a much more challenging thing for a child than for an adult. So I think we tend to move away from make-believe as an adult unless we're really into role-playing games. But that, that, cohere that, that urge towards coherence still exists. Um, closure and expansion are both, are, are both more narrative-focused in mm -hmm. that we like um, having things that are, that are closed off and, and tied up neatly. So, for example, um, a lot of collection in yes. games is tied toward ideas of closures. Got to catch them all. Yes. You know, why? You don't. You don't get anything for catching them all. There's no. Doesn't matter. You know, I'm, that's me. I'm, the, I'm know, that player. Why? Why <laughs> is Pokemon so popular? It's because of closure. But closure also fi figures into how we want games and stories to end. Um, an example I use is that if you, uh, if you're playing a game and the power goes out. The game's over, but it's not really satisfying because you want it to to, to, to wrap up. You want you want all those little chains of anticipation you have running in your mind, all that anticipatory play. You want that to shut down and converge cleanly. Um, sometimes you you go to a movie and the movie ends, but you still want to talk about it. On my first date with my wife, we um, we talked for like an hour after the movie was over, and that's how our relationship started, because the play that engendered was engendered by the movie was not over when the film stopped running. We still had, we still wanted closure. We wanted to understand it and fit it all together and understand how all the different parts worked. And then when that happened, that was satisfying. That resolved it. But we didn't win the movie. <laughs> we, we had achieved closure. Um, and at the same time, um, um, the, the, the corollary to closure is expansion. Sometimes you want to play just to see what's going to happen. Right. You know, like, you know, what happens if I set off you know, um, um, this bomb in an in, in, in enclosed space with all my teammates. Why, why kill everybody? That'd be hilarious. That's sort of, so <laughs> griefing is often a form of expansion play, but, um, but also exploration is, you know, what's over the next horizon? What's around here? What are the, all the possible permutations that I, that, that yeah. I can experience? Seeing where all the edges of the world yeah. might be. You know, um, and so all of these, the sense of exploration, but of also closing things off, or also making things that cohere either with our own understanding, all of these are ways to bias a play space to have either good or bad moves that do not involve winning. And um, if I was going to have you know, one sort of, or actually it's two, you know, have two big principles of situational game design for moving away from the, the, the sort of from where we are now, it's aimlessness and um, it's stillness. Yeah. That that you're not imposing goals on the player. And you're not forcing the player to do anything. That there's room, there's there's places where you can just be in the world and imagine who you are and understand who you are. And there's room for players to set their own goals, to play, not to win, mm -hmm. but play just because they enjoy the joy of playing. Wonderful, that's wonderful. I think on that note, I want to open it up. I see a lot of heads nodding up and down, uh, so I'd love to open it up to other folks' questions for you. Uh, do we have anyone who, who wants to ask a question of Brian? Just too much agreement. Yes, Jeff. <laughs> oh, fantastic, Brian. Really, mm -hmm. really great. And yeah, there's a reason heads are nodding, because this is just uh, solid gold stuff. Um, 
really great to have you here. I'm, you know, I'm interested because uh, you know these um, heuristics that you're, you're describing, and, and I haven't read the book yet, but I'm going to immediately. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, uh, for, for me, a lot of it comes down to uh, like a, you know um, behavioral manipulation, right? Like that. That's sort of like the dark end of all of this. That that like these are exceedingly nuanced, like from a sort of devil's advocate perspective, these are exceedingly nuanced methods for gathering attention, focusing it, and scaffolding and, and shaping performance. And not just in the game space, but in the extra ludic space. That, you know, the player may be having a wonderful sort of, you know, rich internal experience, but then they, their body may be constrained in some, uh, the, the bodily performance may not be that. Uh, Etc. What are the sort of ethical touchstones for you in in these design mm. questions? Oh, so, so the, the question is, what are the what are the ethical questions? To this oh, <laughs> that's very hard. I mean, it's um, all art is manipulation to some degree. <laughs> I mean, it's you know, if you're if you're trying to communicate, then to some extent you want to shift people's understanding in a particular direction. And so, I think that it's impossible to say, oh, that it, yes, it is manipulative, mm. but only in the sense that all communication is some form of manipulation. Um, <laughs> and I think that the ethical considerations come from what sort of person are you trying to weave afterwards? Um, you know, and it's, it, it's kind of like, you know, what are you trying to say? But it's more than that because you're taking into account the other person's starting position. So it's like, it, if you know, you have a model of the assumed player and you're hoping that it will shift them in a particular direction, I think just thinking about in terms of what are possible ways that you could shift them in unethical ways or that your work could be used by other people to shift people mm -hmm. in un unethical ways, you know, it's... It's a very, I, I wish there was a simple answer, but of course it wouldn't be ethics if there was a simple answer. It's, <laughs> it, I think it's a case of that it, it at least gives you a framework for thinking about um, given particular audiences, how might they play in ways that produce something that is ugly or that you really don't want them to do. And, and so for example, you know, it, it, it's like, um, if you create a game in which there is, even if you create a game where you're intentionally trying to say violence is bad, will p some people be playing it to enjoy the violence that you have created, even though that's not the message that you intend? And so that's an ethical way. That's a that is an ethical question to ask yourself. That that what ways of playing am I opening up people to? By structuring these spaces, and what might, what uses might different people put my name to, and you know, we do what we can. <laughs> you know, it, 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 yeah, it, it's like you know, Ed Wood never intended for people to think to think he was making comedies. Right. You know, and that, that's not really, that's not ethical. But you know, thing, you know, <laughs> did Ed Wood deserve it? I don't know. Uh, but it, it's. It's one of these things you, you can never completely control the uses people will put your games to, but you can at least think that that they might be playing in ways that that you didn't intend. Thanks.
Brian, I want to echo uh, Jeff's thanks. Thanks for this terrific conversation. Uh, yeah, it's supremely inspirational. Um, uh, I wanted to ask you, um, uh, kind of following up on Jeff's philosophical <laughs> overtures. It's know- like opening cans of water. <laughs> 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 That's what we do here. <laughs> One of the things I really love about your work is the connections you build to... Um, everything from neuroscience to semiotics. And I was wondering if you had any new revelations in the course of uh, writing situational game design um, that could connect out to a kind of greater um, uh, philosophical, a general kind of philosophical approach. Any new discoveries? Any, uh, because I, I think you have a very deep and clear insight kind of into the nature of consciousness. <laughs> through, through your work. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, in, in I, think so, I, I think so too. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but then. And so what's the scoop? What's the latest uh, for you? What are you yeah, thinking so, about recently? So, so the, the question is about like philosophical um, connections. Um, so th- this could be another like hour-long talk. Yeah. I, I mean, th- and I, I didn't know a lot about philosophy when I started this pro- process. A lot of this stuff about philosophy and neuroscience came because I realized I was making really broad and extraordinary claims, mm-hmm. and I needed to at least provide some rationale that these things were grounded in other fields, that I'm not saying stuff that's right. completely out of left field. So in terms of philosophy, what I really align with are the pragmatists, and pragmatism is, the, in a nutshell, is the philosophy of pure epistemology. Mm-hmm. It is that the world, and, and what, what pragmatism says is that the world is unknowable. There is no metaphysics in pragmatism. There is no sense of like what the world really is. All we have is what the world seems to be and how we, and, and what sort of in mental structures we construct to explain how the world seems to be. And so by describing pragmatism and, and reading pragmatism, I realized that we can think about pretty much everything what, that we do within, that, that the human brain does is um, we, are, we are building models, we are building predictive models of the universe. That's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. Um, that everything we do is based around the idea of um, we have a stream of senses that are coming in and we are, we are converting these into um, strategic constraints that allow us to make accurate predictions about the future. And these accurate predictions can be as simple as when I reach out um, and touch this screen next to me, I'm going to feel it. Oh yeah, it's really there. Right. I have a model that there is a computer screen over here and by touching it, uh, my model is confirmed. There's a whole little epistemological adventure that's happening <laughs> in the fact that I can touch this screen over here. And if I reached over here and I put my hand through it, that's crux, oh my God, what's going on right, here? Right. You know, is it, was, was that actually, uh, was that an, an optical illusion? Was that mm-hmm. a, you know, uh, uh, now I have a problem that I have to solve in the world. And we're doing this over and over again, like multiple times a second, so fast we're not even aware of it, that we're constantly, with this, this internal, um, the game is understood, the universe is understood, that we have inside our heads, and we're constantly updating it with, with, our, with our sensory information. And in fact, if we're ever cut off from the sensory information, that model begins to drift rather rapidly into incoherence and insanity. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're put in a sensory deprivation tank for more than a few hours, <laughs> um, your sense of reality really starts to break down because that, that model can't run without this continual feedback loop. And so then, how this all ties into games is that um, this epistemological cycle of continually anticipating what's going to happen and then having it confirmed or 
um, denied is the, the the sort of the the way that we exist within the world. That is our that that is our way of being, and pretty much maybe the way that everything that thinks has to be within the world. Which is why I suspect play is not only universal among humans and animals, but would probably be with aliens as well. That anything that has to that has to know the world will know it in this particular epistemological way. And if you're doing that, then we can think of play is a is a case where we are structuring the, or particularly games, let's use games, we're using games as a way for structuring the world around us in a way that our epistemological cycle runs very smoothly and organically and naturally. And if you think about what it's like when you're playing a good game, everything's kind of, it's kind of knowable, but kind of not. You're kind of solving problems, but you're not quite sure. And um, truths reveal themselves, and the constraints you're operating under, the rules around you are knowable, but kind of right on the edge of knowing. There's the sense of like the, the the if the world were ideal, we would be playing all the time because the play the, the way we would be moving through the world, the way we'd be knowing and existing, would always feel as though we were satisfying the heuristics of play. Yeah. Of course, the world is not playful, so we have to make games, which are little artificial <laughs> mini versions of the of the world where we can exist for a moment in this sort of the sort of epistemological paradise, but we always wind up eventually falling back out of the real world where things aren't nearly as entertaining. But then various kinds of um, uh, utopians, I will call them, like <laughs> our friend Bernie DeCoven, want to nudge us towards that mode of being more frequently. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I, think the, I think the world is, would be a better place if we played more, not because it benefits us in any way other than the fact that playing is enjoyable and we all, we all deserve enjoyment. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'm I'm not a big fan of the utilitarian idea that play is good for you. Mm -hmm. um, we should it, play is play for its own sake, yeah. and the more we can let people play, the the better it is. People are happy when they play; they like it. And in the world is cruel and harsh and not not set up for human beings to uh, to enjoy themselves. So let's try to create places where humans can enjoy themselves. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's lovely. We had one more question oh, here yes. in the back, yeah. So I was really struck by your idea of um, situational play, or situational design, rather, as kind of a manifesto for the ways that we play, not just the ways that we design. And it, it strikes me as almost like counter-cultural to the, the ways in which um, we're um, used to perceiving, um, you know, games as this this kind of almost experience-driven, goal-driven, almost transactional um, kind of um, you know, space. And I'm curious how, uh, what are ways in which we can, you know, start to steer players into that headspace of thinking about games, um, you know, just for the joy of playing rather than um, towards, you know, the very goal-driven mindset that um, they're used to experience. So the, the question is uh, like how do steer players into moving away from um, yeah. exclusively goal-driven play? Um, and I think, I mean, some people will be interested in seeking out weird avant-garde things. The, 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 there's there've always been people who wanted stuff like that. I think one thing is is to seduce them with goals that then build um, other non-goal-based constraints. I mean, the, the, with the example with Journey, it's like if if Journey was like just, hey, hang out with the other person if you want to. Right. It probably wouldn't. People probably wouldn't do it very much. Some people would, and some people wouldn't. But because it actually gives you a clear, tangible benefit in the game if you're trying to win or to complete it, then 
that encourages people to do it. And I think a lot of times with with mainstream stuff, stuff that's not deliberately avant-garde and, and, and difficult, what works best is creating situations where um, trying to win encourages you to create um, more emotional or narrative ways of thinking about the world. Like, um, yeah, just that I, I, need to, I need to do this thing in order to win, but in doing it, I, I kind of felt something. What, what happened there? And so I, th I think that you know, as this happens more and more, um, and as players become more and more attracted to um, you know, these kinds of experiences, then you know, maybe the, the critical faculties of the player base will expand and we'll have a larger audience for people who want experiences. I mean, it, part of it may be that there are plenty of people who don't, aren't particularly competitive, so if we offer more just sort of fun little experiences, you know, um, The Sims is huge, and The Sims is not about winning. So, you know, creating more things like The Sims where there are fun things to do where people can play out little fantasies um, without it um, being goal-directed uh, may be the way to do it. I, I, I wish I had, like, an obvious, like, do this! Um, but, yeah, I, I, think, I think it'll happen on a multitude of fronts, I think. You know, um, seducing people with goals, providing, um, you know, ways to play out fantasies, and, you know... Um, Basically, um, challenging people to you know, to like harder games, and not not harder to win, but harder to get. Mm. Nice. Thank you again for sure. talking. I had my brain going like fireworks. It's great. Um, <laughs> but my problem in making games is always seems to be taking these really abstract, advanced ideas of game studies and how we interpret them. And actually, like, putting it into the process of designing the game. I was wondering if, uh, what maybe strategies you had when designing a game. Do you start from something small and then s go over your ideas and to it? <laughs> I, I ping pong all over the place. I mean, I, yeah, I, I describe a methodology, but I, I, I don't follow it strictly. But it, what I would suggest is you know, um, think about situations. What from moment to moment is the player doing, and in doing that, who are they? And that's um, so. Like one of my rules of thumb is, you know, um, all never give the player more than three to five choices. So what is the what are the three to five things the player can pick in this in this moment? And think about what constitutes a real choice and what's not a real choice. So for example. Yeah, you know, oh yeah, you, you can you can turn the wheel to the right or the left, but they both go to the same place. Well, that's not really a choice. That's one thing that the player can do. So, looking at for, try, trying to break down a play experience and think about from moment to moment, what does the player think is happening? What choices are they making? How are those choices changing them? And how does that feed into the next into the next cycle? Um, that, that that's the only advice I have. I, I don't have a str you know because sometimes I'll be like. Oh, I did the, you know, th this thing's really fun to do. We should do more of it. And then it's like, well, why was that fun? What was the, what was the real core of that? Was it was it the jump, or was it the planning of the jump? You know, what's what's the, what's the real fun part? And then, you know, um, you know, um, oh, you know, would this be fun if the player had more feedback? Or, you know, um, this wasn't fun because the the, the, the um, players when they got here had forgotten that thing I told them before. So, 
Um, maybe I should be reminding them to do the thing. I mean, it's it's all it's it's a big hairball. <laughs> it's all <laughs> together. And, and, but what what I found is that by thinking, but always taking it back to not just what is the player doing, but what does the player think they're doing? Mm. What do they th- what do they think is happening right now? Um, so it, there was a game that I made called um, Sorcery, and um, I, I actually I, I said I made it. I I, I took over running it because it was in trouble. And the, the first boss battle, we we, uh, we thought it was going to be great, and it hinged on players putting together two different mechanics, and they just completely. Um, it, it, there are people who got stuck on it and never got past it in playtesting. We're like, oh, this is awful, and then we realized that the problem wasn't with the boss battle. The boss battle was fine, but that we hadn't been there. There was one mechanic they knew really well, but we hadn't been giving them other reasons to warn the other mechanic, and so the way to fix the boss battle was to go and um, create things that you could only kill with the second mechanic. And so once that happened, then all the boss battle was fine because everybody knew it. And so a lot of times it's, it's like thinking about the, the, the key insight was talking to them after the playtest and understanding what their mental model of the world was. And their mental model of the world was, I just shoot this thing! Instead of realizing that just shooting the thing was not going to win because there was another mechanic that they that they had to do at the same time, and it, it all goes back to cr- you know thinking about what was their model of the world. What did they think was happening? Does that help? Is that okay? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Probably one more question, and then we'll we'll uh, we'll let Brian go. From so thanks again for being here. Everything you talked about has been so fascinating. I know I spend a lot of my personal time playing games, and like you said, I I play just to play, and I think that's. Um, time well spent, but I know a lot of people still would consider that as a waste of time. And I guess my question is, do you think that there would ever be a perspective shift among society, like anytime soon, where play just to play isn't seen as a waste of time, it's seen as productive just for the sake of being fun? Uh, not until we smash neoliberalism. <laughs> <laughs> no, a, a, a waste a waste of time. That's interesting. Um, a waste of what? What else should you be spending your time doing? You know, making money, improving yourself. Um, there's, <laughs> it, it's like there's a whole value system that is implied understanding by by the by the phrase a waste of time, and that is that we should always be doing something that is productive, or that leads to self improvement, or that increases our profitability or our likelihood that, you know, things will go, things will, um, will benefit us in some way, and. That's not the only way humans have been. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, 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 my, my wife is a medievalist. She teaches medieval studies at, at UCLA. And um, one of the things that's hardest to get about the medieval mindset is that they were not capitalists. Um, they did not have... They existed in a world of interpersonal relationships and miracles and spiritualism. And that motivated everything. That was And so understanding their way of being in terms of our capitalist neoliberal society where everything is instrumentized where everything is is done for a purpose is sometimes it leads you astray they, they, they their actions seem pointless or empty or stupid but they wouldn't have thought that and so I guess what I'm saying is that um, uh, I reject the idea that things have to be useful <laughs> yeah it's uh, and I, th- I think we're, we're, we're at a particular um, political moment when um, turning everything into utility is 
becoming cruel and awful. And um, I particularly don't want play to be turned into... Well, it, it, it won't. Play is more powerful than that, because whenever you try to... So we, we to get into um, 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 gamification... Uh-oh. <laughs> when, you, when, you, when, you, when you try to turn play into something that achieves these goals, it, it always winds up sort of squirting out and slipping yes. away. Yes, <laughs> the, fun goes, the fun goes out of it, and then it's like, oh, well, you, yeah, you do all these tasks, and you collect all these badges, and what are you, what are you left with? And so, it plays a way of, of defeating the constraints that are that are that are imposed upon us. So yeah, and, and so I, I would say if, if, if you know, um, defeat neoliberalism, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Which is an, uh, yeah, I'll probably get in trouble for this. It's an unexpected political <laughs> turn, but it really is an unexpected end. But let us recap and also understand that uh, as I dis as I understand it. Um, uh, aliens are probably playful. Design is a giant hairball, uh, <laughs> and um, there's so many more things to play than games. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, we want to thank you so much, Brian, for visiting with us uh, tonight, and uh, for sharing your ideas. And uh, know that everyone here will be uh, reading your book now, if uh, if they haven't already. So you should expect uh, sales to go up. <laughs> uh, and we hope that we will see much more of you uh, around here yeah. in the future. Well, uh, as I said, I got laid off last week, so I got, I got plenty of free time right now. Exactly. Yeah, well, hire so Brian is the message, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, yeah. and we'll bring. I'm, I'm bringing back. I'm, I'm, I, I, it's not weak. I'm hoping this this period of freelancing will end soon. But <laughs> I, I have no doubt, actually. All right. Thank. Let's thank Brian. Mm. Woo.